Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through to 14. As we observe the Lord's table, it is fitting that we have come to this portion of Scripture and that we consider the words that are found in verse 14, the blood of Christ. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The Apostle has been speaking about the first covenant. The first covenant also had blood. It's referred to there in verse 13. The blood of bulls and of goats. The old had the blood of the beasts. Because the old is pointing to Christ. But the new has the reality. The new has the fulfillment. The new has what Peter calls the precious blood of Christ. And we have to remember that the first covenant, the old covenant, was a covenant of grace. You must never think that the covenant was so different in the old that it had to do with the law, it had to do with works. No, it had nothing to do with works whatsoever. Yes, the giving of the law was in the old. But the law was not given to save us or to work for salvation. The law was given to awaken us as sinners. It was not a legal covenant to be saved by works. There are some people who teach that. They were saved in a different way in the old, under the old. But that's not true. The law, the covenant of Sinai pointed to Christ. Especially the ceremonial aspect. It's all pointing to Christ. To substitution. To the real and true remedy. So the old covenant was the covenant of grace. Just as much as the new covenant is the covenant of grace. But it was administered differently in the old. Because Christ had not yet come. It had to point to Christ. But now Christ has come. So they weren't saved in different ways in the old. That's what I'm saying. How were Old Testament saints saved? Just like you and me. They had to have faith in a Redeemer. They had to have faith in Christ and one to come. Who would do the work and reconcile them to God. And it was all pictured in the priestly work in the tabernacle. They were taught in the old without the shedding of blood. There's no remission. So the old taught that. It's a gracious covenant. And so people were saved by looking to a saviour who was to come. He was pointed out in the tabernacle. In the priestly work. And of course when he comes and obtains the eternal redemption that we read about in this chapter. All the old ceremonies have to cease. They have to end. There's no need for them anymore. We're under the new now. And the old is gone. With all its ceremony. And this is what Paul means. So we're in the new now. Enjoying the reality in Christ. Who has finished the work. The veil of the temple. Having been rent in two. Through his cross. 
So you understand then that the old and new are not contradictory, not opposites, but setting forth the same thing. But the new is setting forth it in much greater fullness and clarity. So the new is better, as Paul says. Let me repeat then, they're not two different covenants. There's only one, a covenant of grace. It's administration under the old being different from its administration now that Christ has died, risen, ascended and is seated at the right hand of God. And one of the great old covenant ceremonies, the greatest holy day of all in the Jewish calendar was the Day of Atonement. The annual day of atonement, that's the great ceremony. And that occurs in the very midst, the middle of Leviticus chapter 16, when the high priest went into the most holy place for the first and only time that year, beyond the second veil, and not without the blood of a beast. Just once a year, to sprinkle the mercy seat, And that ceremony had to be repeated every year. And that ceremony lies at the heart of the old covenant worship. Showing that it's gracious. It's pointing out the way to God. The way of reconciliation. It's pointing out a priest to come. And how God is going to bring us into his presence. It's all pointed out there. The new is all pointed out there. But that is not the way itself, obviously. Because, you see, he only pointed it out. The new is Christ the way. He's the true high priest. He's the new priest. And he has made the way to be open, to be manifested, so that it's clear. And in the old, the high priest who went in and out every year, he's just pointing it out, that's all. He's not the way. Christ is the way. Now in the ceremony on the Day of Atonement, there is a forward movement activity toward God. It starts at the altar, out in the court. The beasts are offered. The blood is collected. The high priest makes his movement toward God, going in through the first field, going into the second field, and doing his sprinkling work there in the most holy place, I'm praying and interceding for the people as he does so. But he had to come out again. He had to reverse. There was a great reversal. He had to leave. Because it wasn't saving. It didn't finish the work. It didn't bring in the true salvation. It didn't open the living way. It was a material tabernacle under the old as Paul has been showing us. Spending so long to show us. It was all material. It was a sinful priest. It was a man of compassions like ourselves. He was stained like us. It was the blood of beasts. It was ceremonial. And it was repeatable of necessity. Because none of it ever cleansed the sin away. It had to be done again and again. It wasn't the true. It wasn't the new. Verse 11, but Christ being come, 
and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. So Christ has this forward movement too, into the presence of God from his sacrifice on the cross, moving forward into the presence of God as the high priest in all its glorious reality. Christ alone. That's what the apostle is setting forth here. Christ deals with the heavenly tabernacle. He's the sinless high priest. His sacrifice is not animals. He doesn't offer the sacrifice of beasts. He offered himself, it says in the text, verse 14. He shed his own blood, verse 12, with his, by his own blood. So this is not ceremonial that Christ does. This is the fulfillment. This is the reality. This is the true. And so he entered into the true holy place. Thus it is not repeatable. And he doesn't have to reverse out again the way the old high priest in the Old Testament had to. He sat down at the right hand of God. He doesn't reverse. He doesn't come back to repeat. It doesn't need to be repeated. Verse 12. What does it say there? He entered in once. Once was enough into the holy place. And he never left it again. And he won't until he comes back again to take all his people into his presence. So what we have here is Christ's movement into God's presence as a powerful living redeemer who brings his people right to God after him and with him. That's what we're living in now. That's what we have now in Christ under the new. And so this is all through his death, his resurrection, his ascension and his sitting down at God's right hand as king priest the mediator of his people through the power of his blood the true blood the precious blood and that lies at the heart of all of this the blood of Christ our subject tonight that lies at the heart of all of this the cross and sacrifice of Christ is at the centre now his incarnation is, is vital but on its own and by itself it's not enough it's not the incarnation alone that brings us nigh to God. Yes, he comes into the world, he comes as man, but he must die. He must offer himself a sacrifice. He must shed his atoning blood. So it's Christ's cross that is at the heart and center of it all. It's the cross, as Paul says, which is the power of God unto salvation. It's the blood of atonement that brings the redemption. And so he was incarnate, became man, and offered up the sacrifice of his body and blood on the cross. And it's that that lies at the heart and center of this. Not, not by the blood of beasts, but by his own blood. Once for all. This is the heart. This is the center. These are the crown jewels of the gospel. 
that we're dealing with tonight, the blood of Christ. And here we are told what the blood does. What does it say there in verse 12? Neither by the blood of goats and of calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. That's what Christ has done by his blood. He's obtained something. The high priest never obtained anything. It was only ceremonial. It was only ritual purity. But Christ, by the shedding of his blood, obtained eternal redemption. The real redemption, the the salvation that is eternal. The apostle is speaking about the eternal inheritance in this epistle. He calls it the eternal salvation. And he calls it here in our text, the eternal redemption. Christ has brought in the eternal salvation. The great, the real, the true. So that's what the blood of Christ does. It obtains the eternal redemption. The, The real deliverance. You can't be delivered from sin without the blood of Christ. You can't be delivered from Satan without the blood of Christ. You can't be released, that's what redemption is, released from the captivity, released from the bondage, released from the darkness, released from the chains of sin and Satan. And it's only the blood of Christ that does that. So by his blood he's obtained the eternal redemption. So that's the first thing this text says that that blood has obtained. And then secondly, in verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This this is the second thing that the blood of Christ does. It purges the conscience. It gets to the very heart of a man. It gets to the very center of sin in our humanity. The conscience. And it liberates the sinner by purging his conscience so that that sinner is liberated from the dead works to serve God. To love the Lord and to serve the Lord. It's only the blood of Christ that brings that deliverance, that purging of conscience. Now the dead works here are all that sinners can do. There's just another name for sins. Sinners just sin. That's all the work they do every day. Just sin. Dead works. So it's nothing to do with good works. We are to do good works. Good works don't save. But the apostle here is not talking about good works. He's talking about sins. What we do. Everything we do is sinful. We need to be purged in our conscience. We need to be cleansed. You see in chapter 6 verse 1 about laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. You don't have to repent of good works, but you have to repent of your sins. And the sins there are called dead works. And that's the same word that the apostle uses here, the purge from our conscience from dead works, because sin gets on the conscience, you see. The only thing that can deal with the conscience is not what you do. Not what you do to appease God. Make yourself feel better. That doesn't get down to the conscience. That doesn't deal with it. It's only the blood of Christ that gets down in there to the conscience to give a sinner peace with God. It's only the blood of Christ does this. The wages of sin is death. The works of sin lead to death. The deaden, that's why they're called dead works. 
and the wages of sin are just and right. And our conscience tells us that. And conscience is telling us of the justice of God and how are we going to be right with God. And the blood of Christ is the only answer. It purges. It reaches internally. It gets down in. You see, the, the blood of beasts, it was only ritual cleansing. It was only external. It was only the purifying of the flesh and of the garments outward. But the blood of Christ, inward, internal, deals with the uncleanness. It deals with the sin and all its reality and all its ugliness. It satisfies the honest heart. If we confess our sins, the blood of Jesus Christ is able to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the, the blood of Christ attains eternal redemption and purges the conscience. How, how do we know this then, secondly? How do we know the blood of Christ truly does this? How do we know that the blood of Christ has obtained all of this? Well, how did we know that the annual day of atonement didn't? The annual day of atonement didn't do it because the, the priest came out again. He reversed. And then he had to repeat it. Now that just told the people every year the blood of beasts doesn't deal with sin. Doesn't remove it. Doesn't bring us redemption. Doesn't give us a deliverance. Here we are again a year later. The same old business. We haven't been redeemed. We haven't obtained it. We don't feel any better. The worshippers went away. Oh, they were ritually pure. But they still had had a bad conscience because every one of them knew the blood of beasts can't deal with sin they all knew that didn't reach their conscience the veil remained closed we know the blood of beasts was ineffectual because the veil was remaining closed and nobody could go in still and nobody could go to the presence of God and nobody could say Abba Father nobody could go in with boldness because the blood of beasts didn't do it it didn't accomplish it. And so it was, it was very visible and very evident that that was so. And, and the high priest died. And they had to get another high priest in his place. We repeated the old same procedure. Priest after priest dying, another one coming in his place. But not anymore. How do you know the blood of Christ has been effectual? Because he didn't reverse. And the veil has been opened now. And the Bible says we can go right in. We know it's effectual. We can go right in. We have the boldness now. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ has gone into the heaven of heavens. The veil is gone. The way is opened. And he doesn't have to reverse. And he doesn't have to repeat. He's seated. He's finished. He ever lives to make intercession. The blood of Christ has been effectual. It has opened up heaven. It has made the way. We know it. Because we see it. Our high priest, we see him by faith at the right hand of God. He is, as the text says, an high priest of good things to come. And he's opened up the holy place. And he's brought in the new and he'll get his people at the end and he'll bring them into the new heavens and the new earth. He has appeared once for the sacrifice of himself. And he'll not reappear again until the end of the world. 
when he comes out of the sanctuary to get us, to bring us into the new, the new cosmos, to be with him. So the very fact that he sat down at the right hand of God, finished the work, no reversal, no repeating, tells us the blood of Christ has obtained the eternal redemption truly, and the blood of Christ truly purges our consciences that believe in Christ. That's the proof. And then thirdly, why is it that the blood of Christ does this? Why, why does the blood obtain the redemption? Why does the blood purge the conscience? Why does the blood open up heaven and make a way for us to go in? What is it about this blood that obtains us? And so let's think about that because it's all here in the text. Why, why his blood and not the blood of beasts and of goats and lambs or of men even but Christ's blood alone? Well, what, what does the text say? Well, it says, first of all, it is the blood of Christ. How does the apostle begin the paragraph? But Christ being come and high priest. And then verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ? Do you see how he emphasizes the Christ name? Now, the apostle is very, very careful in the way he uses all these names of Christ. And you have to notice them. Sometimes it's his son, sometimes it's Jesus, sometimes it's Lord, and sometimes it's Christ. And he's very careful to, when he talks about the blood of Christ, and in this particular work of redemption, he uses the name Christ. You see, the blood has to be the blood of Christ. The word means anointed, but it doesn't just mean anointed, it's it's from the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed of God. The, the name of God isn't at all. He's the anointed of God. He's the Christ of God. He's not just anointed like, like the kings and like the prophets in the Old Testament. No, he's, he's the Messiah unique. He has the reality of the anointing, the true Holy Spirit in all his fullness. He is the Christ, the one who was predicted, the anointed of God. God's man, God's redeemer, God's mediator, God's prophet, priest, and king who brings sinners to God. In other words, he is the official savior, the Christ. He's called, he's equipped by the Spirit, he's appointed because you can't intrude into this office because you, you need the power of God to do these things. You can't be a mere man. You have to be God's man. And you have to be the incarnate God-man. The Word made flesh. So it has to be a very special person. Christ is the only one who is that person. So why his blood is so atoning and so powerful is because it's the blood of Christ. Christ. Redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. You see how the emphasis is always in this official capacity of him as saviour. It's his Christ's blood. And the blood of all his saints is precious. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of all his saints. But there's no death so precious 
as the death of his Christ. So that's the first thing. He's the official saviour whom God has set forth to be a propitiation in his blood. And without that official capacity, without him being sent of God, without him having the eternal spirit, there's no power in, in the blood of any mere man. It has to be the blood of Christ. And this is why it is powerful, because it's the blood of Christ, you see. And then it is, secondly, the blood of Christ that offered himself. What does it say there? Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place. And then in verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself. So he, he offered himself. It's his own blood. His own sacrifice. His own death. He didn't slaughter a beast. He didn't slaughter another man. No, he, he gave up the, himself unto death. He allowed himself to be slaughtered as the sin burner. So he offered himself. And that tells us of his willingness to be the sacrifice and to give himself his willingness to die. But it also tells us of his priestly function. How that he offered himself in a priestly manner, a priestly way. The sacrifice took place on the earth. He offered himself on the earth. He shed his blood on the earth. He made the sacrifice at the cross. It all took place at Calvary. And at Calvary it was finished. By his own blood, by his own death, by his own sacrifice... He offered himself. And so he doesn't need daily as those high priests to offer up again and again and again and to die again and again. No, he, he just offered up the sacrifice of himself once for all, the Bible says. It is finished. And so Christ gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us. So that's why it's redeeming blood. Because it's sacrificial atoning blood. The offering of himself. The only offering that could deal with sin. There's something really truly taking place at Calvary. There's something in the death of Christ. That is making true reconciliation. True atonement. And it was finished at the cross. It was all done on the earth. The work of offering himself. Unto God. And that's the power of the blood. And it's the blood that has this power. Of eternal redemption. And to purge the conscience. Because it's the blood of Christ. That did offer himself. As the text says. Without spot. Without spot. Verse 14. It's the blood of Christ. As of a lamb. Without blemish and without spot. And that's the power of the blood. That purity, that sinlessness, that's the sacrifice of one who was altogether pure and holy. And it's not just about having no sin. It's about having righteousness, a love for God, a desire for the glory of God in everything. And Christ offered himself without sinning once, without offending God once, and he offered himself in such a way as to glorify God and to magnify him. He loved his father 
when his father was imputing sin to him. He loved his father whenever he was bearing the curse of the cross. He didn't go back. He didn't flinch. He didn't stain his conscience in any way. But he, he wanted to glorify God and to love his father as much as he ever did all his life. Even though he's suffering the agony and the darkness of hellish pains on the cross. There was such an offering. Without spot. And it was to God. That's another thing that makes it the powerful blood. He's offering himself without spot totally to God. You see, the beasts weren't going to do anything to God. No, he provides his son. That's the true offering, the true sacrifice, the only remedy. That's why the, the types, the, the pictures, the sacrifices had to be without blemish. If there's any blemish therein, if it's lame, if it's blind, if it has any illness at all, thou shalt not sacrifice it unto the Lord. But Christ has, has no, no stain. So it's the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. You see how Peter emphasizes that? It's pure blood, it's spotless blood, it's without blemish. This is its power. And then it is the blood of Christ that offered himself without spot to God. And he did so, and this is very important, through the eternal spirit. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God. You see, the blood of Christ is so powerful because the three persons are involved in it. There's the Father to whom the sacrifice of the cross is being offered up. And there is the, the Spirit of God himself who is assisting the humanity of Christ. Who is sustaining the humanity of Christ as the Christ. Equipping him, gifting him, upholding him and sustaining him so that that man, Christ Jesus, can offer himself truly through the eternal spirit unto the Father. And because all three persons are here, that blood is powerful. And there's nothing like it. And there's nothing that can compare to it. The Bible says God didn't give the spirit by measure unto him. That's why nobody else can take away sin. Even if they could live a sinless life, their sacrifice wouldn't be any good because they wouldn't be offering through the eternal spirit and they wouldn't have the divine nature present in the, in the sacrifice of Christ as the God-man. You remember how he said, I by the Spirit of God cast out devils. And by the same Spirit of God he offered himself unto the Father. The three persons love us. We must never think that the Holy Spirit was absent at the cross. And had he only come down on Pentecost. No he comes to sinners on Pentecost. But he's always present with his Christ. You see we can't have the Holy Spirit. Until the Holy Spirit does that work in, his, in, in, in the Christ of God. So that we may have that Spirit. Coming flowing down from the head. And reaching out to the whole body. So the Spirit of God is very important too in the sacrifice of Christ. And the Apostle identifies him here 
This is why this blood is able to bring in eternal redemption. The blood of Christ. So congregation, do you see how dark sin is? Do you see how dark the stain of sin is? That it can only be dealt with by such a remedy. That it takes the blood of Christ. It takes the agony and the suffering and the shame and the humiliation and all the unknown and mysterious elements in his suffering. It took all of that to deal with the stain of sin on our consciences. How dark is sin? How its stain cannot be removed at all. Unremovable is sin. God can't even remove it with a word. God can't remove sin the way he created the world with a word. He can only remove it in a way that is satisfying to his justice in the blood of his son. He spared not his own son. That tells you how dark sin is. How deep is its stain on the conscience? Only the blood. The only way. And do you see also, congregation, why we preach Christ crucified? What else would we preach? What else is there to preach? Only the cross. The power of God unto salvation. Only the cross. That's why we proclaim the blood of the Lamb. That's why we exalt him. Who loved us and shed his blood for us. That's what our message is. And that's the only hope for sinners. And do you see why we oppose liberal Christianity? And ecumenism. That would bring us back to the darkness. Back to salvation by works. Back to ritual. Back to ceremony. For the purging of conscience. The powerless ceremony. The day with conscience. This is why we oppose Romanism. This is why we oppose anything that promotes a works salvation. And that ridicules atoning substitutionary sacrifice. We cannot compromise with so-called Christians who put the blood of Christ into the background, who hide the cross, who have no faith in the power of Calvary. And so we have to separate from liberal Christianity that neither believes the power of the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross or his bodily literal resurrection and the ascension of his true humanity into the glory at the right hand of God. Anybody that questions these things are to be people that we cannot have fellowship with. And so we have to oppose liberal Christianity. And then we have to ask you, have you come to Christ? Have you come to this fountain? Have you washed in this only remedy for your soul? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? 
Has your conscience been purged from all sins? And are you serving the living God as one redeemed by precious blood? And then lastly, as we approach the table, let us come to the table together to commune with this blood again by faith and to have fellowship with Christ in his cross and to give thanks to God at the table for giving to us such a saviour, for giving to us a sacrifice in the body that was broken and in the blood that was shed to participate with thanksgiving unto God. So all glory to the slain lamb tonight and to the loving Father through him and to the mighty Holy Spirit who also was present and involved in the crosswork, the triune God, to him be all glory.